Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. It's the middle of April and the sound of birdsong is drifting through the ancient woodland I'm standing in. It's starting to come alive with colour as the first bluebells open. Soon enough, this whole wood will be carpeted with delicate bells of vivid blue and I'll be able to catch the scent of wild garlic on the breeze. This week, I've been guiding families through an enchanted fairy glen. We've been growing magic, spinning spells and making merry to welcome in the warmer days. While I've been here, the idea of running away from society to live in the forest keeps coming back to me. It's an age-old ideal. Of course, really doing it would likely be dangerous, frightening and the kind of cold that I have nightmares about. But the fantasy of escaping the daily grind of reality to live a simple and self-sufficient life pervades literature and popular culture. I'm talking about this because this week we're visiting Nottinghamshire, home of one of England's most legendary outlaws, Robin Hood and his band of friends. The idyllic piece of the woodland is very tempting, <laughs> so next time you hear from me I'll probably have built a moss-covered eco-structure and I'll be toasting my handcrafted foraged berry marshmallows over the campfire. Although we'll be skirting round the edges of Sherwood Forest, Robin Hood isn't part of today's farcical tale of trickery, greed and the destruction of prized crockery. So, string your bow and keep an eye out for the sheriff, then gather round the fire and listen in. Welcome to the Three Ravens podcast. There were three ravens sat on a tree. Down a down, hey down a down. They were as black as they might be with a down. One of them said to his mate, Where shall we our breakfast take? With a down, dairy, 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 down, down. 
Hello and welcome to episode 7 of the Three Ravens podcast. I'm Eleanor Conlon and I'm standing in the shadow of a huge stone blackened by the devil's grip and I'm joined on my journey into the weird and wonderful world of English folklore by my co-host Martin Vaux. Well, I don't like the look of that stone. <laughs> Thank you so much to everybody who's listened and shared the podcast this week. We're delighted to say that we've smashed our first goal and yeah. have over 500 downloads so celebrations have been held in the Three Ravens household. That's right. We're not people who brew our own wine, but if we did brew our own wine, then we would have drunk some of the wine that we brewed. <laughs> yes. Please tell your friends about the podcast and let's keep growing our little community. Speaking of which, uh, thank you for the lovely interactions we've had on social media this week, especially including with Howard, Mark, The Flourish Folk, Weird Wednesday, Bexhill Museum, Samantha Haunts and the mighty David Crowther from the truly excellent History of England podcast. There's just a few more weeks to enter our Three Ravens card design contest, so if you're an artist of any skill level, please send us your designs before the first series ends with episode 13 to threeravenspodcast at gmail.com. And that is artists of any skill level. We're looking for work inspired by the folk tradition. So today is April the 17th and we're celebrating Hocktide. Happy Hocktide, Martin. What is Hocktide? Hocktide begins on the Sunday after Easter, uh-huh. which is also known as Low Sunday, right. and continues until tomorrow. It is a time of feasting, fun and games, all in the name of collecting money for the church. Oh, OK. All right. So so jollies and then you give your money over. All yes. right. <laughs> There's a similar custom to the man and woman lifting, which we mentioned on the last episode, yes. actually. So at Hocktide, men and women try to capture and tie each other up with ropes, chains or ribbons. <laughs> Excuse me? And only release each other on the payment of a small fee, which goes to the parish for charitable works. Oh, OK. Course. So kidnapping for a good cause. Yes. Completely. And it really, really worked. By the 1450s in London, there were actually entries in church accounts for money raised in this way. I bet there were, yeah. And to all reports, the women always managed to make much more than the men. (laughs) Well, that is a slight surprise, as I would have thought that just by having longer arms, men would be able to gather more women up to kidnap I guess but women are smaller when we're nifty yeah that's true you're craftier <laughs> we can you? dart out from the shadows and capture you when you're least expecting <laughs> so it so is there anywhere in particular in the country where hocktide is a bigger thing yes hocktide is big in Hungerford in Berkshire oh, right. where it's still celebrated no way it is a special hocktide court is established to appoint some special officials yeah. called tutty men tutty men yes a tutty means a posy or a nosegay okay, so, so a small flowers. a small bunch of pleasant smelling flowers yeah. and these tutty men go through the streets wearing flowers and uh, carrying long poles decorated with flowers and oranges and they collect rents and dues from the inhabitants of hungerford but <laughs> while the men have to pay in coin the women can choose to pay with a kiss oh. This is just like men and women lifting. It's always interesting, isn't it? The kind of kiss for a coin kind of exchange rate. Yes. I feel like it it doesn't quite work out 
based on our coinage. No, one wonders <laughs> if, if the men could offer a kiss and what the Tutty men would have made of that. Well, indeed. Well, the Tutty men are also accompanied by the orange scrambler. <laughs> the orange scrambler? Yes, the orange scrambler carries a bag of oranges to give out in return for kisses or just to passing children along the oh, route of like the Tutty men. I kind of algebraic equation, like one times orange equals one times coin equals one times kiss. Is that how <laughs> I'll leave you to work that one out, puzzle that through. (laughs) The whole event starts with a macaroni supper at the John of Gaunt Inn. (laughs) This was like a very confused tradition. (laughs) It's extremely long running. And then the John of Gaunt Inn is home to John of Gaunt's actual hunting horn and it's still kept there today. And it used to be blown to open the hot side ceremonies, but now they use a different one because it's very old. I feel like this sounds like a great tradition, but I'm not sure that we should go to John O'Gaunt's Inn on Hocktide because we'll just get kidnapped. We will, and I'm not sure how I feel about some of it, although I can get behind the idea of a macaroni supper. So do we know where this came from, Hocktide? Well, the origins of the festival are a little bit mysterious, but some scholars suggest that it began to celebrate English freedom after the death of the last Danish king, Hardicanute, in 1042, and the ascension of Edward the Confessor. Wow. I don't know what Edward the Confessor has to do with any of this, but it is one theory that's been put forward. Maybe he just liked macaroni and kidnapping. (laughs) (laughs) Only time will tell. (laughs) So, could you stop the county criers harassing locals for kisses and shillings and get them to clang us into Nottinghamshire? Release the county criers! Nottinghamshire is completely landlocked and is bordered by South Yorkshire to the northwest, Lincolnshire to the east, Leicestershire to the south, and Derbyshire to the west. As ever, there's a map on the website at threeravenspodcast.com to help you locate it. Martin, what do you think of when you consider Nottinghamshire? Ooh, uh, well, the obvious one is Robin Hood. But then outside of Robin Hood, I think about miniatures wargaming because there's a whole load of companies that make wargaming miniatures around that part of the world. They call it the lead belt. (laughs) And then, of course, for me, as someone who's particularly interested in Lord Byron and his history, his old family seat... Uh, Newstead Abbey is up there and very beautiful. I'd love to go. It's in private ownership, though, so you can't just walk into Newstead Abbey. But still, Byron's body is buried there and also the body of his daughter, Ada Lovelace. So I'd I'd love to go there. It's somewhere that I'd consider a bit of a mecca. Oh, we'll have to make a a Byronic pilgrimage one day. like Child (laughs) Harold. Yes. (laughs) Well, I visited Nottingham once, but only the city. So I haven't been to many of the fascinating surrounding places, and there are quite a few. Tell me more. Well, Nottingham lies on a Roman road, the Foss Way. I've heard of this. Which runs diagonally across England and links Exeter and Lincoln. Okay. Uh, The county was settled by the Angles originally and became, yep, you guessed it, part of Mercia during the Heptarchy. Nice. So part of Pender's immense kingdom. (laughs) It was good, wasn't it, Pender? I mean, obviously also very bad, but but also... But also very good at kinging. Yeah, top kinging, Pender. (laughs) 
I found out about Nottinghamshire that it was originally divided into districts called hundreds, okay. which sound a little bit like the Anglo-Saxon equivalent of local councils. Yeah, and lots of counties were split into hundreds. Yes, so they were under control of a sheriff and had their own administrations and their own courts. Now, in the Doomsday Book, the districts of historic Nottinghamshire are actually called Wappentucks. Wappentucks? Yeah, it's, oh, it, comes from, it comes from the Dane law. Um, you might have heard of Danegeld, the tribute paid to the Danes to help them see that they didn't really want to viciously raid <laughs> English shores. No, not at all. <laughs> Obviously, we do still have an equivalent of Danegeld today, but we call it insurance instead. <laughs> uh, yes, and also we pay it on Hogtide from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Octide Dengelt, <laughs> the name of my new insurance company. <laughs> Martin mentioned Newstead Abbey, but there are lots of other places of historical and cultural interest too. There's Wollerton Park and Wollerton Hall, which contains the Nottingham Natural History Museum and the Nottingham Industrial Museum. OK, was Nottingham big in the Industrial Revolution? Yes, it was. And it's very famous for its lace industry for textile firms. Oh, okay. um, so it was the centre of the British lace industry um, in the industrial period. And you can still visit the site of the Victorian lace market in the city today. Sadly, the trade's mostly died out now because it's it's been mechanised and we don't produce lace on a mass scale in England anymore. But there are some of the old 19th century lace machines there which you can go and visit and have a tour around. Oh, so fascinating because when it was handmade, if you look at old portraits of people wearing lace, work oh it's so intricate it's incredible it's absolutely amazing i mean in the 19th century it would have been made by machine but a very different machine to the kind that makes lace today and it's just a completely different process i don't get that kind of thing at marks and spencers no, absolutely not. <laughs> I was mentioning Woolerton Hall yes. because it's what's known as a prodigy house in Elizabethan Jacobean architecture. Because it's full of fire starters. Ah, not that kind of prodigy. Oh. They're large, showy mansions with a real wow factor, uh-huh. basically, which rich upcoming courtiers who wanted to make a good impression built. They often had loads of windows and interesting architectural features like towers and twiddles and crenellations twiddles is the official word so a bit like follies i guess during the georgian era a little bit but it's an entire habitable house which is incredibly showy offy the window thing was was big so hardwick hall which was built for bess of hardwick in the 1590s was described at the time as hardwick hall more glass than wall which was a little bit of a burn but it felt like a jealous (laughs) a jealous burn as well yeah well it's fair to say the elizabethans did not value minimalism at (laughs) No, no. After all, if Queen Elizabeth I suddenly decides to drop by on progress, you want to be able to house her in the style to which she's accustomed, don't yeah, you? you've always got to make sure there's some cake and biscuits in the cupboard, just in case. <laughs> and a few priceless objects that she might like so much she just has to take them home with her. <laughs> <laughs> 
Nottingham does have a castle, right. which is actually a restoration mansion built on the original site of a Norman castle. Okay, one of them ones. Yeah, it's an impressive structure, but it doesn't have the crenellations, towers and portcullises we might usually expect from an English castle. Well, you know, I'm not necessarily going to jump out of bed unless your castle's got crenellations. No, absolutely not. Licensed to crenellate or we're not interested. <laughs> but it does have some dramatic moments in its history. Um, I think the best being when King Edward III, as he then became, right. staged a coup against his own mother, Isabella of France, oh, yeah, I at Nottingham that. Castle, yes. and deposed her and became Edward III. Ah. And I, honestly, I really wish Christopher Marlowe had written a sequel to his play Edward II, because the story kept going and remained gripping. Well, it feels like there's a gap in the market there, Eleanor. You should sweep in. You should sweep in and write Edward III. Yeah, do it. (laughs) I'll pop that on my to-do list. (laughs) (laughs) Now, outside of Nottingham, there are the intriguing Creswell Crags on the border between Nottinghamshire and Derbyshire. Creswell Crags is a limestone gorge with several caves where there have been some amazing archaeological finds. Such as? Well, they found uh, the Pinhole Caveman, which is a human figure etched on a bone, Ooh. a wealth of cave art and flint tools, mm-hmm. and even remains of prehistoric animals, including hippopotami what? and hyenas. Oh, no. Just think, Martin, hyenas once roamed free in Nottinghamshire. Goodness me. In the well, Ice Age, though. So, yeah, still, that's <laughs> sufficiently far away from I mean, you. we've been talking about various beasts being loose across various moors already throughout the series. I mean, who knows? And you'd really hate for one of those to be a hyena. Yeah, they could be hyena. <laughs> At least you'll hear them laughing as they come towards you. Oh, God, you. they're cackling in the night. <laughs> well, if they get thirsty, yeah. they can call off at the oldest pub in England. Oh, blimey, that's quite So Nottingshire claims it has the oldest pub in England, which has a brilliant name. The yeah. pub is called Ye Oldie Trip to Jerusalem. <laughs> so the pilgrimage. <laughs> yes, maybe the pilgrim would have been a better name, but they've, they've named it Ye Oldie Trip to Jerusalem. And it was supposedly established in 1189 when Richard the Lionheart became king and oh, crusades yeah. for the Holy Land were what all the cool kids were doing. Yeah, sure, sure. Now, I do slightly wonder with this if the name was a, a cunning marketing strategy. That's sort of, don't worry about going all the way to Jerusalem, try our beer and it'll be as though you've been. <laughs> well, also, you know, when the wife says, Brian, where are you going? Oh, just Jerusalem, Margaret. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's it. I'm doing a noble thing. A, a trip to Jerusalem. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, you've come back inspired by <laughs> <laughs> So I normally include a section on folk medicine from the local area. Yeah. But this time I've got recipes too. Ooh, okay, go a on. A wonderful eighteenth century recipe book was found at Snainton, belonging to a lady called Mary Welby. Mary included cures for life-threatening illnesses as well as the ingredients for perfect pudding. Oh, she sounds like a babe. Sometimes on the same page. <laughs> You'll be pleased to know that there are several different cures for cancer in the book. Oh, that's handy. One of which is to put powdered horse's foot and ground mace into a glass of white wine and take it for six mornings. Oh, well, that seems very simple. I don't know why the modern medical establishment hasn't cracked onto this. Yes, it doesn't sound very appetising. Certainly not as appetising as Mary's parsnip fritters or her apple pudding. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like it's also a bit of a shame that Mary didn't combine the two so you could have a nice curative dinner. A curative parsnip fritter? Yeah, quite right. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, we may have made great strides in medicine here on the podcast <laughs> right this day. Here, you heard it here first. <laughs> Another great superstitious practice that I read about taking place in Nottinghamshire was that of couvard. Oh, it's got an evocative name. What is a couvard when it's at home? So it's when a woman is giving birth right. and her husband also goes to bed yeah. and pretends to be ill in order to relieve her labour pains. <laughs> what? I know. This is great. It's quite a good one, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so... I don't think it was probably very effective. <laughs> I just love the idea of this poor woman struggling away to give birth to a 10-pound child well, and I don't, I don't know. her husband is in the next room. Have you ever got a person in your life who, when you're feeling a bit under the weather, then always ups the ante? You know, I've got a bit of a sniffle. Oh, I have a terrible cold. You know, it's a bit like that, yeah, isn't it? So the husband Ooh, goes, struggling with my labour pains. Yeah, exactly. And then old hubby goes next door and starts screaming because <laughs> oh, yeah. I so can only much. assume that it was meant to distract the evil forces causing the pain. Yeah, okay. And to try and take some away from her. <laughs> I mean, going back to Newstead Abbey and Lord Byron, when his wife, Lady Byron, was giving birth, he spent the evening downstairs firing off pistols at bottles what in a, a state of high distress. Very relaxing environment that must have been for her to give birth in. Oh, I think their marriage was incredibly relaxing for Lady Byron. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps he should have gone to bed and pretended to be in labour instead. Yeah, that would have been the honourable thing to do. <laughs> Byron, you should covard. <laughs> it sounds like a rapier move and a duel, doesn't it? Does, it does, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and we can't talk about the folklore of Nottinghamshire without mentioning the elephant in the room. Was or, there an elephant there? Well, or the devilishly handsome fox, if your frame oh. of reference is the charming animated film. <laughs> it is, of course... Robin Hood. Yes, yes. The legendary outlaws' adventures, outwitting the grasping sheriff of Nottingham, have travelled well beyond the country boundaries, and you can actually become an expert because the University of Nottingham has a Robin Hood module in its history MA. Well done. So there's Bravo, a Robin Hood pathway University for budding historians. That is outstanding. <laughs> so when we think about Robin Hood. I mean, I am always curious about these kinds of figures. Is there actual historical basis for this guy? Well, the Robin Hood story is part of a tradition of outlaw literature dating from as early as the 11th century. Yeah. He first pops up in William Langland's alliterative poem, Piers Plowman. Yes, now Piers Plowman, very important piece of early English literature. It's sort of one of the cornerstones of English poetry, you might say. I mean, you have Beowulf, but obviously yeah. Piers Plowman is recognisable in English. So Robin Hood rocks up there. Is that That's pretty much the first mention we okay. have. It seems quite unlikely that there was a real Robin Hood. Sure. Although later Victorian versions have tried to claim he was Earl of Huntingdon or Earl of Loxley or um, to give him these these sort of romantic titles which yeah. is very much in the Sir Walter Scott tradition sure. uh, yeah. but it doesn't have any basis in fact. Well that ties into a lot of kind of 19th century folk traditions doesn't it where you know the folk revivals were happening in England and in Scotland and in Wales and so people were digging up all sorts of old traditions and yes. saying well well this is actually ancient and, and really 
some of those traditions aren't so ancient. We're made at up all. five minutes ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, the best clear source for Robin Hood stories is called A Jest of Robin Hood, which is a long-form ballad dating from the 15th century. Uh-huh. There are lots of references in Shakespeare's plays as well, including a pretty unflattering mention of Maid Marian by Falstaff in Henry IV Part One. Yes, well, Falstaff was quite rude. She's <laughs> a byword for being a, an unchaste, loose woman who hangs out in the forest with a bunch of men. <laughs> yeah, she's sort of interchangeable with Guinevere in a lot of stories. Mm, yes. Well, interestingly, the addition of the love interest Maid Marian came a bit later so in the original A Jest of Robin Hood he was devoted to the Virgin Mary well as we all should be obviously. Uh, but after the Reformation <laughs> yeah. Robin's Maria becomes romantic rather than religious oh, which yeah. kind of reflects the changing sensibilities the of the audience and um, the kind of things they wanted to consume a revelation <laughs> which is interesting yeah so another really fun story from the county is the wise men of Gotham. Oh, is that like Batman and his team? Actually, almost. What? So, a really fun fact about the village of Gotham in Nottinghamshire, the sinister city which Batman keeps safe in the comic books is actually named after that village. Is it? And this story, which I like to think of as the original NIMBY story. Uh For non-UK listeners, that's not in my backyard. That's when people don't want housing estates or developments built near their house. We call them NIMBYs in this country. Exactly. So the story goes that in the 13th century, King John wanted to travel through the village of Gotham and possibly establish a hunting lodge there. Yeah, as he might. But any road the king travelled on had to be made a public highway. And the people of Gotham didn't want HS2 circa 1202 (laughs) running through their village. So when the royal messengers arrived with the good news, everyone in the village either pretended to be imbeciles or devoted themselves to ridiculous tasks. So everywhere the messengers went, people were doing something idiotic. (laughs) The messengers reported back and King John decided he'd go somewhere else. (laughs) So so acting like there was some sort something in the water, some sort of plague or an affliction that made everyone there an idiot. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, So he avoided it and and, and they kept their village clear of hunting lodges and public highways. I'm glad Batman (laughs) wasn't there, you know, because he tends to beat up on the mentally ill. That's one of the things that Batman does. Well, that that's the reason, because Gotham was, um, in the comic books, was yeah. originally this lunatic asylum. Well, yeah, yeah, Arkham it? Asylum. Of yeah, full of, full of mad people, and it's it's named after that place. <laughs> ah, that's too good. <laughs> there are also lots of tales of boggarts, gnomes, and the legendary Hemlock Stone, which is a blackened sandstone standing stone. Gosh, that was a mouthful. Yeah. At Bramcote, <laughs> supposedly held at Lenton Priory by the devil. Oh, he needs to stop throwing stuff. Luckily, it missed its mark. Well, <laughs> but I agree, the devil has a bit of a track record with throwing large rocks. Yeah, he's a lobber of things. <laughs> Still, we wouldn't have the interesting landscape of England, would we, if the devil hadn't thrown his toys out of the no, pram all over the yeah. place? <laughs> So today's story is much less scary than last week's, unless insatiable greed frightens you, and I will start spinning my yarn right after this. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Always give a witch what she asks, unless you can think of a way to trick her instead. There was once a witch in Blidworth who was as house-proud as a new bride. Her cottage was always kept spotlessly clean and tidy, with the magic books stacked neatly, bundles of fresh herbs scenting the air, and the copper cauldrons shining like the morning sun. Her pride and joy was her collection of fine china, which was displayed complacently on a broad dresser. This witch's name was Cecily Cuthbert, and she liked everything around her to be pleasant. That was how she'd become a witch in the first place, in fact. She'd grown up in poverty until the devil in the form of a hare had appeared to her and her mother and sister and persuaded them to join his cause in exchange for a seven-course dinner with wine pairings. That first dinner had awakened a hungry fiend in Cecily Cuthbert and from that moment on she just couldn't get enough of cinnamon sweetmeats, juicy chicken legs and lashings of butter and cheese. Her cheeks were as round as apples and her skin was smooth and pink from all the eating and fine living. Despite her love of the most luxurious food, Cecily Cuthbert didn't like to pay for it. After all, she'd already paid the devil with her soul, so she thought she shouldn't have to pay for anything at all after that. Everything she owned, from her soft leather boots to her geranium-scented hair oil, she'd acquired by other means. In fact, the saying in those parts that you should always give a witch what she asks originated with Cecily. She had only ever had to do one piece of real magic in Blidworth, but it was enough for word to get around. One day, she'd been about to board the cart bound for Nottingham, and she fancied some of the carrier's pipe tobacco to smoke herself, so she asked him for a pinch. But the carrier refused and told Cecily Cuthbert that she should buy her own tobacco as he had done. So she never rode the cart that day, but she fixed the horses with a fierce stare and then they wouldn't move. They stood stock still, rooted to the spot, and after nightfall the carrier knocked at Cecily Cuthbert's door with a great pouch of tobacco. From that day on, people always gave her what she asked for. I should tell you that Cecily Cuthbert had a familiar spirit to help her in her enchantments, a hobgoblin from the devil's own breeding grounds. It looked like a cat to the eyes of others, and it fed from a mole on Cecily's left arm and was known as Rutterkin. It was just as well that Cecily had a familiar to remind her of things, for she was very forgetful. Now one day, Cecily put on her new heeled boots and tallest sugarloaf hat, 
and hung her willow basket over her arm and rode the cart into Nottingham to do some shopping. She didn't shop as you or I do, for she never paid for anything, and more often than not she didn't remember the things she'd really needed but came back with lavender soap instead of eggs or gingerbread instead of ribbons. Rattigan twined about her ankles, trying to remind her that she needed oil, bread and potatoes, but she hardly listened. Nottingham was a fine place to spend a morning wandering around the shops and stalls in those days, and Cecily's basket was filling up nicely with pieces of lace, sticky currant buns and other good things. But by midday, she had a powerful thirst and a craving for something sweet. She could almost taste the sugar in her watering mouth as she imagined biting into a delicious pudding. She was thinking about calling into an inn for some lunch when she heard a thin cry from a deserted alley. Who'll buy my buttermilk? Something that you may not know is that witches are excessively fond of buttermilk, and no witch was ever fonder than Cecily Cuthbert. So she followed the sound of the voice down the dark little alleyway until she saw a small skinny boy holding a pail of delicious frothy buttermilk. This boy's name was Little Jack, and he was the only son of a poor widow. They only had one cow to their name, and it was their whole fortune, that cow. Every day, the widow milked the cow and made fresh cheese and butter to store ready for sale at the great Nottingham Goose Fair, while Jack took to the streets of Nottingham to sell the buttermilk. His prices were reasonable, and he would pour a generous helping of buttermilk into your jug for just a few pennies. But that meant nothing to Cecily Cuthbert. She went up to little Jack as bold as brass and asked him for the milk. Little Jack didn't like the look of the crow's feather stuck jauntily into Cecily Cuthbert's hat, or the way mud didn't seem to stick to her grass-green petticoat, but he clutched his pail tight in his trembling hands and told her that he and his mother were poor and couldn't afford to give the milk away for free. Cecily Cuthbert was astonished, for nobody had ever refused her since the trick she'd pulled with the carrier's horses. She was hot and thirsty, and the sweet creamy milk in the pail was calling to her. "'You'd better hand it over,' she said crossly to little Jack, "'or I'll put you in my sack and take you home with me, and then I'll eat you for supper instead.' Cecily always carried a sack when she went shopping, in case any of the kind townsfolk wanted to make her a particularly large present. But little Jack put up his chin and refused to give her the milk. So Cecily Cuthbert took out her sack, grabbed hold of Jack and stuffed him inside it, along with his churn and pail. How delicious he would be baked in a pie, she thought, with a flagon of lovely buttermilk to wash him down. It was a fine day, so Cecily thought she'd walk back to Blidworth. Besides, she could work up an appetite for eating little Jack. But a little way out of town, she started thinking about Rutterkin's reminders to bring back certain things. What could they have been? One had been potatoes, she was sure of it. Could she manage without them? Oh, perhaps, but wouldn't a pie filled with little boy taste better with some nice mashed potatoes on the side? Cecily determined that she must have those potatoes. Ahead, she saw a pair of fellows cutting a thornbush, so she asked them if they would mind the sack for her while she just popped back into Nottingham. 
The men agreed and off Cecily went. But as soon as she'd gone, Jack started wriggling and kicking and making a noise in the sack, so much that the hedge cutters opened the top of it to see what all the fuss was about. They were all for leaving well alone, for they'd recognised Cecily and knew it would be a bad idea to get on the wrong side of her. But little Jack gave them all a free drink of buttermilk, and they agreed to let him go. The sack was a bit flat without Jack in it, so he picked up some of the thorny hedge cuttings and stuffed them in instead. The hedge cutters watched doubtfully, but little Jack gave them some more buttermilk, and they promised not to say a word. When Cecily returned with the potatoes, she thanked the hedge cutters and went on her way with the sack slung over her shoulder. But the thorns from the hedge cuttings poked through the sack and stuck into her back so that she thought Jack was pinching her. It was a long way home with the thorns pricking her and Cecily angrily calling out to the supposed little Jack to keep his fingers to himself. When she got back, Rutterkin rubbed up against her ankles and asked her if she had remembered the potatoes, oil and bread. Oil and bread went out of my head, said Cecily, but potatoes I have and something better. She shook out the sack with a flourish, expecting to be able to show off the basis of a scrumptious dinner. But all that scattered onto her clean floor was a bundle of thorny clippings. Rutterkin yowled and hissed, and Cecily said some words which were never found in Dr. Johnson's dictionary. There was no pie and mashed potatoes for dinner, but instead the witch and the cat sat sadly eating currant buns and planning revenge on little Jack. The next day, Cecily put on her sugarloaf hat again and trotted back off to Nottingham. Rutterkin cautioned her to remember the oil and bread this time, but most importantly to capture that slippery little Jack. Jack thought that he'd got clean away from her, so thought nothing about selling his buttermilk in the same streets as usual. Imagine his surprise when Cecily Cuthbert's shadow in its pointed hat fell across the end of the alleyway. She didn't wait to ask him for his buttermilk, but stuffed him straight inside the sack, churn and pail and all. Cecily marched straight out of the town gates and past the thorny bushes, giving the hedge cutters a fearsome look which made one turn pale and the other have to sit down suddenly. But she hadn't got a little bit of the way back to Blidworth when she started thinking about Rutterkin's reminders. What could they have been? One had been bread, she was certain. Could she manage without it? Perhaps, but wouldn't the gravy she'd make from Little Jack's bones taste better with some fresh springy bread to mop it up? Just up ahead, she saw a couple of stone cutters mending the potholes in the road, so she asked them if they would mind the sack for her while she just popped back into Nottingham. The stone cutters agreed and off Cecily went. I hardly need tell you that just the same thing happened. The stonecutters had their buttermilk, Jack got clean away, and Cecily Cuthbert walked back to Blidworth with the heavy stones in the sack banging against her back, thinking little Jack was kicking her. Rutterkin jumped down from the dresser and asked her if she'd remembered the bread and oil. Oil will not have for the boil, said Cecily, but bread I have, and something better. Well, she shook out the sack, but all that thundered onto the floor was a pile of clattering stones. Rutigan spat 
and screeched, and Cecily kicked a chair leg in an unusual show of pique. There was no roast boy and fluffy bread for dinner, and the witch and the cat went to bed with a wheel of Colton Bassett Stilton and plotted their revenge on little Jack. The next day, Cecily laced up her boots with renewed determination and set off for Nottingham Town. Rattikin reminded her thrice times nine about the oil, but most especially to let nothing distract her in bringing back Jack. Little Jack had wisely gone to sell his buttermilk in a different street, so it took Cecily half the morning to find him, and when she did she was good and hungry and ready to take a slice out of him then and there. But she was as good as her word to her familiar and went straight back home passing the hedge-cutters and the stone-cutters with her nose in the air. When she got back, she put the sack down on the floor in front of Rattikin and shook it hard to check that Jack was still inside it. "'What about the oil?' said Rattikin. Now, Cecily was all for managing without the oil, now she'd actually got Jack home, but wouldn't his flesh taste better if she lightly sealed the meat in a pan first? This time... Cecily put Rutterkin in her basket to make quite sure she wouldn't forget, and she shut up the cottage windows and locked the door and tied the neck of the sack as tightly as she could so that Jack wouldn't escape. As soon as he was alone, Jack started to wriggle and jiggle inside the sack. He fairly well danced a nine men's Morris in there, until the rope around the sack loosened enough for him to worm his way out. He was surprised to see how clean and tastefully decorated the witch's cottage was, but it gave him an idea to teach her a lesson she wouldn't forget. He took all of her fine china plates and delicate teacups from the dresser where they were displayed and put them into the sack. Then he retied the rope around the sack's neck. Although the doors and windows were locked, it was lucky for Jack that forgetful Cecily Cuthbert hadn't remembered to light her fire, so he could climb up the chimney with his buttermilk churn and pail and run back home to his mother. Some little while later, Cecily and Rutterkin returned in triumph with a large flagon of oil and lots of other nice things too, which the kind folk of Nottingham had been practically begging them to take. They were ready to cook a wonderful dinner, and drink up every last drop of little Jack's buttermilk. Quick as a flash, Cecily upended the sack and shook it out, but all that fell out was her beautiful collection of china, and every last bit of it smashed to smithereens on her polished flagstone floor. Cecily Cuthbert howled in rage and vowed that this time she would put a curse on little Jack, which would last for seven generations. But Jack wisely moved his buttermilk operations to Mansfield, and after a few days of prowling the streets of Nottingham in search of her foe, Cecily forgot all about him too. And so my tale is told, and now it belongs to you. The Witch of Blidworth. <laughs> Are her actions justifiable or do you think she deserved little Jack's horrible revenge? Well, there were some aspects of the story where they felt very true to life and like somebody I know quite well. 
Um, so that was fun. <laughs> I can't think who you could possibly be talking about. <laughs> I thought it would be fun to tell the story from the witch's perspective rather yes. than the hero's. Yeah, as... because but- Buttermilk Jack and the witch is an old, old folktale from Nottinghamshire, isn't it? Yes, it is. And I thought we needed a bit of a contrast to the terrifying ghost story you told last <laughs> week. Um, so it's a bit more lighthearted in tone. <laughs> Even so, she was thinking about eating him. Well, yeah. I mean, although it's uh, it's a bit more jolly, I did want to include some classic witchy tropes like indulging in a little light cannibalism <laughs> and uh, fixing people with the evil eye. Yes, I think we would have been <laughs> cheated without those. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite a classic folktale in structure. We've got the power of three, yep. um, the, you know twice twice you fool me but you won't get me the third time and the magic sack of course yes sacks sacks are rife in fairy tales and um, the trope of the magic bag for on thompson uther index enthusiasts that's uh type 569 the magic object <laughs> <laughs> but um this is more about escaping the bag actually it's oft- yeah. often in in the grim tales particularly a magic bag can produce things when reached into it can feed the hungry it can transform well there's also you know famously the soldier's tale where he gets the magic bag and he can tell anything to get in my bag and he yes captures death he captures, and captures death the demons from and hell sadness and, and all the demons all, all these things and then he ends up living alone and, and nobody dies and oh yeah it's a great <laughs> great story if you don't know the soldier's tale oh, so last one. winter martin and i watched the fantastic version of that that's told in the classic tv show the storyteller oh, so good. oh it's amazing the puppets are fantastic it really holds up i totally recommend that to any Whole puppet and fairy tale fans on youtube check it out yes what a gift <laughs> <laughs> So witches in folk tales are often pretty similar to the devil yes. in that they can be easily tricked and their greed is so often their downfall. Yeah, I mean, hubris is the other one, isn't it? Excessive pride. So, you know, that's the classic Greek myth thing. Anyone who's prideful, anyone who's arrogant, they're going to have a downfall coming. And from the moment you started talking about that very nice china Ooh, at the beginning of the yes. story, I thought... It's like Chekhov's Crown Derby. Yeah. <laughs> It is Chekhov's crown derby. <laughs> <laughs> you knew something horrible was going to happen yeah. to it. <laughs> yeah, I knew it wasn't long for this world. <laughs> but actually, um, so the saying that if a witch asks for something, you should give it to her, does have a little bit of a basis. In fact, there are numerous accounts of cunning folk and healers refusing to accept traditional forms of payment for their spells and charms so rather than saying oh that'll be four shillings like the doctor might they instead say oh no 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 i couldn't possibly but are then offered gifts of food or useful household sure, things yeah, that makes as a kind of barter system yeah nothing nothing is uh, quite given for free but they won't actively ask you for your money now i have to ask was she a real witch from history and all that? Well, possibly. Okay. Uh, a bit, bit like Robin Hood. I, yes, <laughs> I borrowed her name, Cecily Cuthbert, from the 18th century text, The Tale of the Lancashire Witches. Oh, okay. Which is not a history book. <laughs> oh, right. Is it a storybook? It or? is a storybook. Uh, it's a fun kind of 
I mean, it's a fantasy novel, basically. Oh, really? From, the uh, from the 18th century about witches, yeah. It's got a great subtitle, uh, this book. So it's The Tale of the Lancashire Witches, containing their manner of becoming such, their enchantments, spells, revels, merry pranks, raising storms and tempests, riding on winds, etc., the entertainments and frolics which happened among them, with the <laughs> loves and humours of Roger and Dorothy. Also, a treatise of witches in general, conducive to mirth and recreation. The like never before published. Blimey, that's a I bit mean, of a mouthful. They knew how to market books though, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, they the did. like never before published. <laughs> Literary agents and publishers take note. True enough. <laughs> I think uh, the next time I try and sell anything, I might just say conducive to mirth and recreation. Yes, the like never before seen, never before published, never before heard, etc. Et new new subtitle for the podcast. Yeah, perhaps? maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so where will we be wandering to next week and what can we be looking forward to? Well, we are headed to Lancashire next week and the devil is on the loose. Oh again. no, not again. Yep. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> After those Lancashire witches, perhaps. Well, maybe. It might even pop up a guest appearance. <laughs> well, fantastic. Well, I really look forward to that. If you can't wait until next week and you'd like bonus content, including exclusive episodes, stories, and our monthly Three Ravens newsletter, which is packed with all sorts of interesting things, please consider joining our Patreon for just $3 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Three Ravens podcast. Do also check our website at threeravenspodcast.com where we host our archive of all past episodes, the blog, giving expanded information about our episodes, and to visit our online shop for t-shirts and other Three Ravens merchandise. If you have your own folktale you'd like us to feature on the podcast, then do write it up and email it to us at threeravenspodcast at gmail.com and we'd love to feature it in one of our upcoming listener episodes. Until next time then, while our story's gone that way, we'll go this way. And remember, don't whistle till you're out of the woods. Thanks and credit go to Steve Rouds, the English Year, for the fascinating information about Hocktide, the Nottinghamshire Heritage Gateway, our Nottinghamshire Community History website, and visit nottinghamshire.co.uk. Our theme song is the traditional folk ballad, Three Ravens, performed by Ben Harbour and Eleanor Conlon. Our logo and graphic design work is by Ollie James Dare, and the Three Ravens podcast is a Rust and Stardust production, produced by me, Martin Vaughs. Thanks for listening. God sent every gentleman Such hounds, such hawks, and such lean man With a down, dairy, 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 down, down Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.